right. Okay. It's good to be with you. To open your Bibles up, if you'd be willing, to the book of Revelation. I would like for you also, if you'd be willing, to mark a couple passages of Scripture. Of course, we've been looking at the importance of God's Word and its uh, role in our life. And so I trust you brought your Bibles. And I um, want you to mark Genesis. If you want to just mark chapter 3, that'd be fine. We're going to be looking at both chapter 3 and chapter 6, just a couple references. But I'd like you to have your eyeballs on that. And so Genesis chapter 3 and 6. And also, if you'd be willing, just a couple books down from Genesis and Joshua. And I don't even know if we're going to read too much of Joshua. Probably not, but as you begin to flip through and I, what I did, and of course I begin to read through some of that even today, but you go through and you look at all the, the titles uh, to some of the chapters. And we probably won't even look at that, but just in case. That's uh, Joshua. And then uh, I want you to mark uh, John. The last one, chapter 14, and everything else we're going to look at in those chapters uh, will be easy access from chapter 14. Really excited about a new study we've been doing, again, in, in Revelation, and uh, this book just kind of started out as my own personal devotions, and uh, I'm sure you'll, you'll experience this when you begin to saturate in the Word. Uh, we come up, I, I guess I used to express it, uh, my idea of reading the Bible is more of a uh, uh, I kind of like the idea of saturation, that concept, the idea, what the word that paints. Um, you know, there's uh, two different forms of getting wet. Today, I ran from the church to here. It was raining. I got wet. But see, there's a difference between getting wet and being saturated. See, saturated is my son when you put him in the sink for 20 minutes and he comes out and looks like a big raisin. See, there's getting, there's getting wet when you get into the word and then there's being saturated with the word. And it's just two different pictures that it's painted. And so we've just, over the last year and a half, have been saturated in the book of Revelation and, and uh, just begin to surface into, into sermons that we just begin to share. And uh, we begin to share them first out of just uh, curiosity. Some uh, churches we were at wanted to kind of hear what we've been studying, so we did. And now they're a full-blown study. So I want to continue to share with you where we're at. Uh, last night we looked at the prologue. I want to give you just a brief uh, uh, a recap of that. And of course, that's very important. Um, it's the first main section uh, in the book of Revelation. And if you don't like the word section, it's, it's the first opening uh, word that John gives his readers before he ever gets into the, uh, the prophecy itself. And, 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 and really, these first three verses are not necessarily the prophecy. They're John's words before he actually gives the prophecy. So you have the prophecy, and then before he gives it, John says, Hey, I want to tell you a couple things about the prophecy. And of course, the whole basic bottom line of the prophecy is that when you get into it, you're going to get into Jesus Christ as he is revealed. And it's just fantastic just to think that everything God had ever set out to do, he has accomplished, and that accomplishment has taken place in Jesus. See, somehow in relationship with Jesus, as he lives in my life through the presence of the Holy Spirit, I have in my body everything through Jesus that God has ever wanted to do in me. See, he's accomplished it all in Jesus Christ. So it's fantastic. Everything he set out to do, all the relationship, all the overcoming, um, I find it, uh, it was such a, such a, I don't know how you view this, but it was such a radical point for me when I became saved. Um, you know, I thought, okay, I, Jesus is now king of my life. Now I've got to, you know, set out and, 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 and live a life and work and, and, you know, honor God with my life now. And he, I mean, he saved me now. I need to kind of get things done for him. And then when I began to read the Bible and, of course, went to school, I learned that God accomplished everything that I would ever need to do in Jesus on the cross. That all I have to do is accept it. <laughs> that's a bargain, isn't it? So praise the Lord. So uh, that's what he's talking about here in, these, uh, in the opening verses, the first three verses, the prologue, the word before. Uh, everything in the book comes back to Jesus. It's all found and fulfilled in Him. Now, when you leave the prologue, you come into the introduction uh, of the book. So the prologue is not the introduction. This is the introduction. And it's uh, in the NIV, if you have that translation, it's the, it says there in the little title above this section, Greetings and Doxology. Verse 4, he says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits or sevenfold spirit before his throne. Verse 5, 
And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. I want to look with you this evening at verse 4. We're going to spend the next few nights here in this verse. And we're going to specifically look at this evening, uh, this introduction, where John says, Grace and peace to you. So we know that the letter is written by the, uh, uh, John. He says John, he's writing this. But you understand, again, the author is not John. The author is God. In fact, John says to the seven churches in Asia Minor, grace and peace to you, not from John, but grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, as you begin to move through um, this introduction, what's really important is to note is that it's a really unique description of God. Uh, and, and it's Trinity language. Now, if you've spent any time around the church, you might have heard that term, the Trinity. It's the Christian doctrine of one God, okay, it's one God in three persons. Okay, we serve one God, but it's one God in three persons. Now, if you were to look that word up, if you have a concordance and you say, hey, Trinity, I wonder where that appears in the Bible, you looked it up, you're not going to find it in the Bible because it doesn't appear in the Bible. It was actually used by a man named Tertullian. It was born in 145 A.D., so 145 years, about 110, 15 years after uh, the death of Jesus. Uh, he used this word to describe this doctrine of one God in three persons. And this appears in several places in both the New Testament and, believe it or not, the Old Testament. Of course, it's talked about here in Revelation. You don't need to turn here, uh, but I'm just going to read for you quickly. Back in Matthew... Uh, the Trinity, this one God in three persons is just really blatantly stated. And again, this is all over the place. But in Matthew, at the Great Commissioning, okay, the Great Commission scene, it's right before He ascends. Uh, okay? uh, then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth is given to Me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Here it is. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So you have one God in three persons. And again, three persons, it's, it's not like you have three individual gods that's acting in, you know, and they kind of come together and they're one, you know, they're bored and they try to agree. No, no. This is one God in three persons and their persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's not their name. It's not like Dad and, well, he had a kid named Jesus and, and or it's the Son and then you have the Holy Spirit. We talk about that, the names, in terms of their function, Okay. And that's how it's described in the New Testament. So you have the one God, three person talked about in the New Testament. But I found it interesting, and you can look at this yourself, in the book of Genesis. I found it interesting uh, looking at the fall of man. And it's really neat to kind of read the Hebrew scholars and what they think about this. But you have God, and this is one example, there's others, but you have plural language used for God. I thought that was kind of neat. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 22... After the fall of man, and of course he's pronounced the curses upon Adam and Eve and, and the result of what they did and their sin. Verse 22, he says, And the Lord God said, The man talking among himself, listen to this, The man has now become like one of us. One of us knowing good and evil. So again, in terms of describing in the description of God, see it is one God acting in three persons. Okay? Or you might even say there's three persons acting in one God. But it's the Christian doctrine of one God in three persons. Now, Revelation, our passage. This is really important because there is, and this is fantastic, and if you would read uh, commentaries on this or, or you know, biblical scholars on this, they're going to tell you that this passage is very significant because we not only have the presentation of this one God in three persons, but what John does he does not use separation language. This is really neat. He does not use separation language. He, he, he's using the function language. But all, God, all, all, all three persons of the Trinity, they're all focused. They all have the same intent. They all have the same will. They all have the, See, they're all going to accomplish the same thing. And they are all participating in, those, in that will. Okay? So you have the, uh, in our passage it is, you have the grace and peace that is extended to the seven churches. So the grace and peace is extended to the seven churches, and all three are extending the grace and peace. And so it's really neat to see the emphasis, the emphasis of 
each individual person as they are extending in the Godhead, extending grace and peace to the seven churches. Now, you would say, Jeremiah, that's confusing. What are you talking about? Well, I confuse myself sometimes. But in terms of, this is, it's, it might be easier to, to see this, in terms of salvation, okay? You have God, okay? Three, one God, three persons. You have God that is seeking out for the salvation of man, for the redemption of man. The overall goal, the beating of God's heart, okay, is salvation of man. But there are, there are three persons in their function in that. They're all after the salvation of man, but they each have a function in that. You would say, what's the, what's the function of God the Father? Well, it's very plain in the, in, in the Scripture that the function of God the Father, in layman's term, would be to, which is my term, because <laughs> I'm kind of like one layman, it's God the Father overseeing and He has the plan and, and He's in heaven and He's orchestrating and, and of course, what's the role of the, of the Son? Well, Jesus says, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to lay down, I'm going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to set aside anything that would distinguish me from man and I'm going to come down and I'm going to live as one of them. That's His function. It's a different function than the Father. Same goal, with me on this? Same goal, same purpose, different function. But the Holy Spirit says, wow, hey, I know what I'll do. I'll go down and I'll live inside of them. I'll resource them. Hey, I'll provide the, the gifts and the abilities and the power and the, and the resource for their life so they can, hey, they can live the way we've called them to live. So salvation is the heart and it's the, it's the goal of God. But you have three individual persons, one God, three individual persons in the functioning of that. Does that make sense? I don't do it as well as the scholars do. But in our passage... See, he introduces this one God in three persons in different ways. The first way is the first one. The first member of the Trinity introduces is the Father. He says, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. We're going to look at that tomorrow night. Fantastic. It's fantastic. And from the seven spirits. Now, when he puts and, see, he's saying grace and peace to you from the Father. And he describes him as who is and is and uh, his and was and is to come. But he says also grace and peace to you from the seven. And actually, it's really weird language. It's from the seven spirits before his throne, which is the sevenfold spirit, okay, which is the fullness of the spirit. So hey, grace and peace also from the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and also grace and peace to you from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Wow, isn't that fantastic? So you have this phenomenal this depiction, you have this phenomenal introduction where grace and peace is extended to us from the, from the one God in three persons. Okay? So that's, that's, the, uh, that's, that's the introduction. He's extending grace and peace. Now what I want to do with you, or what I want to look at with you over just the next few minutes, will be uh, these terms of grace and peace. And again, I think we've talked about this a little bit, but um, when you look at Grace and peace. For instance, this word grace, it, it, you know, it's, it's, especially if you've been around the church, you have understandings of what the word grace means and you've heard that and, and we've sang songs about it and you might even heard it in reference to a conversation about you or to you. Grace, we have understanding of that. But it's, it's really interesting when you take this word and you look at its origin both in the Greek language and in our Bible. Okay? And I always make a distinction. I always make a distinction when we're doing word studies. Uh, in, in terms of how it was used in their culture and how it was used in the church. Because I'm absolutely convinced that just as it's true in our day that words in the church mean different than they do outside the church, that words in their culture meant different than they did in the church. I mean, you take marriage. See, I'm absolutely convinced, and uh, I'm an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene, which means I'm legal, in case you were wondering. I can, I can perform marriages, and I have. And I'm very, very, I'm very, very blunt on, on this in that, see, what we consider marriage in the church is drastically different than the way they view marriage outside of the church. See, marriage is not, a, uh, marriage is not just a legal type of deal. Marriage is a, it's all covenant language between a man and a woman as they stand before God. And the man and the woman as they stand before God, they're not making promises to each other. They're making, it's covenant language to God. See, if I go out on my wife, it's not that my wife who I'm responsible to, and yes, that's true, but I'm ultimately responsible for him. So it's all covenant language. I mean, even the, and this was a, <laughs> this was a shocker, see, inviting people to your wedding. 
See, I, I thought that was just for the gifts and stuff, so I invited everybody. I mean, just, hey, come, really. Anybody who wants to come, come, bearing gifts. But in the biblical sense, see, that's the idea of witnesses. In fact, if you show up to a wedding, do you know you have a responsibility? You have a responsibility. You have a responsibility as you are standing. You are drawn into that covenant that's taking place between that man and that woman. And the responsibility that you have is that that man one day leaves that woman. It's your responsible to come up to that man and say, Hey, I was there at your wedding. I listened to what you said. You said for better or for worse. For sickness or health. See, he flakes out or he didn't flake out. See, I, I listened to you. Okay? It's covenant language. Now, inside the church, see, that's drastically different than outside the church. So words and phrases and, and, and that, we, that we read in the Bible, see, we just, you can't look up the, the, you know, some Greek translation of that. You need to see how that word fits within the context uh, of the kingdom of God in terms of the context of the Bible, which is fantastic. This word grace has a secular Greek meaning, and then it has a biblical meaning. I want to talk to you about the biblical meaning, and, and of course, I'll give you some information concerning the Greek meaning. If you were to look this word up uh, in their culture, grace, it was oftentimes, and, which is kind of neat, it was just like ours is associated with deity. Grace is associated with, with God in terms of it's bestowed from God. That's how it was viewed in their culture. Grace was something that was oftentimes referred to as something that was bestowed upon man from the gods. Kind of neat. That's how they viewed it in their culture. But when you break down this word in the secular culture, uh, it's grace is, is that word which brings joy, delight, happiness, or even good fortune. That's what that word is. Okay? That's, that's the, in the secular culture. Now, when you bring this into the Bible, it's really interesting, this word. Now, we run into the Greek word in the New Testament. Okay? And we know that the New Testament was written in Greek. We also know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. But we also know that due to the uh, judgments of God and, and all the um, uh, God allowing the, the uh, you know, foreign kings and uh, these uh, you know, Babylon and what have you come in and conquer and they're carrying off. So you had the people that were dispersed from Jerusalem. In fact, in Jesus' day, really only 20% of God-fearing Jews were in Jerusalem. The rest were outside of Jerusalem in foreign countries. And because of that, they didn't have Hebrew. They grew up in their own language. And the, and the language of that day, because of Alexander the Great, was Greek. So in the synagogues outside of Jerusalem, they had Hebrew okay, They had Hebrew that was translated into Greek. Now, why am I telling you all that? It's because we have an entire Greek Bible. Okay? It's called the Septuagint. Now, it's really important that when you look at this word grace, in the Old Testament Greek, it's a translation, the Old Testament Greek is a translation from Hebrew. And when they translated the Old Testament Hebrew word favor, and they picked an, a Greek word to, to translate that into, they picked the word grace. So our word in the New Testament that we have for grace is derived from the Hebrew word favor, which is really neat because the word favor, well, you, it's where we get uh, a couple of our English words. It's where we get our English word, favorite, or favoritism. And so when grace is bestowed upon someone, it's the idea of favor, which means when grace, is, uh, when, when grace favor is, is, is bestowed on someone, someone's playing, the, uh, someone's playing the favorite, or they're playing favoritism. Now you look at this back in the Old Testament, and again, I won't, I won't have you look at this, but when you look at this back in the Old Testament, you see God who has favor upon his people. It starts in Genesis chapter 6 when you have Noah and, and uh, uh, God looks at the people of the earth and there's regret in his heart and he's going to, of course, bring the flood and wipe everybody out. But you have this guy in Genesis chapter 6 named Noah and it says he found favor in the eyes of God. So God looked at Noah and he said, among all the people, I'm going to extend to you favor. Okay, you're my favorite. I'm going to show you favoritism among everybody. And of course, this extends with the people of Israel. And I don't know how you deal with this, but I always, I always found it odd that you look at the Israelite people. And they weren't all that hot of a group. And that's not a com you know, comedy statement. I mean, they really weren't that hot of a group. I mean, they're the ones who saw the miraculous, phenomenal works of God. Yet they still doubted. 
See, they still, they still rebelled. And yet God continually, think about this, God continually showed them favoritism. He was, see, they were his favorite. Now, you look at them and say, well, what was so hot about Israel? Well, nothing. <laughs> nothing was hot about them. That's where Wesley came up with the idea of unmerited favor. And Israel was to be an example of how God feels about all the human race. He began it with Israel, and it's extended in Jesus Christ to us. So you look at this people of Israel going through the Old Testament, and, and beginning with Joshua chapter 7, and you can look at this when you get home, but beginning at Joshua chapter 7 with the Jericho battle, and then extending all the way through all of these cities and kingdoms, God is going with the people of Israel, and they're constantly in sin, they're, they're constantly rebelling, they're constantly doubting, and yet God is taking from all of these other nations, and he's given it to the people of Israel. He's showing favoritism. I don't know, uh, I really don't know how, you, uh, how that affects you, but I've always wanted to be the favorite. Um, when I was a kid, here's my idea of favoritism. When I was a kid, uh, I had a thing for stuffed animals. My son has a thing for stuffed animals. We took him to the zoo for the first time last week, and it was just fantastic. We had Monday through Friday off, and we chose Thursday in between meetings. We chose Thursday to go to the zoo, and I was really excited. You know, he saw the bear. Uh, he saw the goats. I mean, he was just, whoa, you know, Dad, a goat. I'm like, yeah, I know. And uh, so he's doing that whole thing. We're at the zoo, and uh, uh, kind of his grandmother was there, and um, she's not really his grandmother, but kind of, a, he has a ton of adopted grandmothers. And uh, she's, um, of course, taking pictures and all of this, all of this kind of stuff. She's going to buy him a toy. So we go to the gift shop, and he's, you can get whatever you want. And I was like, pick the car, pick the car. Okay. You know, <laughs> they didn't have a car. So, uh, but he could have got anything. Well, what did he get? He ran over to the stuffed animals. And my wife says, oh, he's got 15 stuffed animals. But see, she just doesn't understand a guy and his stuffed animals. See, she just doesn't understand that. And see, when I was a kid, I was into that kind of stuff. And I'd pile my bed with stuffed animals. I got out of that, finally, uh, my late 20s. But, uh, you know, I was really into stuffed animals. Well, he got a white one. And uh, that's the way I was when I was a kid. I had, uh, my mom was awesome. She's a great mom. And she got me a stuffed animal when I was a kid called, I named him Snuggles because I would snuggle up to him. And he was bigger than I was. <laughs> when I was about four, it was literally bigger than I was a big bear. I mean, I, I slept with that thing, hugged that thing, puked on it. I mean, everything you can imagine. I mean, just mom would put him in the washer and give him back. That was my, he was my favorite toy. Now, here's the dilemma. Favoritism is always shown in deeds. Okay? You know, every family has the favorite. We talked about this before. See, every family has the favorite. It's normally the baby of the family. Okay? You know, now, moms and dads will say, oh, they're not my favorite. But when you take the deeds and you line them up, the baby's always the favorite. So it is. So favoritism is shown in deeds in the Old Testament. How do we know that Israel is God's favorite? Look what he did for the people of Israel. It's obvious. His favoritism is manifested in deeds. Okay? Favoritism in my life was manifested in deeds with this bear. When we, when we went to my grandma's house, we called him Mammy and Pappy. Uh, grandma and Grandpa, they're from the South. So when we went to Mammy and Pappy's house, I can only take one toy, which would frustrate me because I'd want to take several things, you know. But at that age, it was just, see, I couldn't leave Snuggles. It was so, I look back on it, it was so ridiculous. I felt guilty for leaving that bear behind. Well, he would miss me. You know how that is. And so mom said I would cry, get all frustrated. Hey, get your toy. We're going to Mammy's. And I would go in there and I would decide, okay, I'm going to take my truck. I'm going to take my blowgun, which was a great toy. Or I'm going to take, hey, whatever I'm going to take, my dart, this, that, you know, whatever I'm going to take. But I would always go back in and dump that and grab Snuggles. And I, mom, I'd be frustrated dragging the bear out, just throwing the thing in the car. and why? Because it was my favorite. And that's the one that I always chose. It manifested itself in deeds. Do you realize that when you take that grace, see, the New Testament word is fueled by the Old Testament meaning of favor. See, when it says, think about this, when it says that God shows you grace, do you know what he's showing you? You're his favorite. He's showing you favoritism. See, he looks at you and see somehow individually, and I don't know how you work that out, but somehow when God looks at you, he shows you favoritism. And you would look and say, well, hey, well, don't get a big head. You're not all that hot. I see it's, it's unmerited favor. You don't deserve it. 
You didn't do anything to gain it. But God, in showing you grace, is showing you favor. He looks at you and says, oh, that's my favorite. Now, this is the word that you begin with here in the book of Revelation. And he looks at these seven churches in the province of Asia. And God, this God, one God and three person, is extending favoritism. He's looking at the seven churches and saying, oh, you're my favorite. Now, that's shocking in light of these seven churches. Because they're really not all that hot. In fact, you look at some of the bold, uh, and I don't know how to talk to you about this, but you look at some of the bold um, reprimands that God gives these churches. See, because they're his favorite, see, he can't just, he can't just sit by and let things happen. See, he can't let them kill themselves. He can't let them sink into death. This is powerful. See, if I wasn't God's favorite, when I was in California and living in the Marine Corps and, and I had massive issues in, in alcohol and substance abuse, see, if I wasn't his favorite, God would have just went, see, driving down the road. The truck, fall, uh, the truck uh, camper opens up or something and, and all the things fall out. Well, see, if Snuggles would have fell out, I would have stopped. <laughs> I don't know how to communicate that to you. See, well, it's my favorite. I can let some things go, but not my favorite. Okay? This is the idea. See, he looks at the seven churches of Asia Minor, and he's not going to wipe his hands of that. And he says, hey, you are my favorite. Now, that's, again, in light of these seven churches. I want to give you just two examples of the kind of people that he's extending this favoritism to, which is just, it's remarkable in my eyes. The first is the church of Ephesus. Um, and you would say, well, what's unique about Ephesus? Well, first off, uh, tradition tells us that they're the, they're the biggest of all the seven churches that's being addressed. Uh, they're probably the biggest in Asia Minor. And uh, uh, they have had some influence in even the other six that have come about. In other words, there's suspicions that the other six churches have come from this church here in Ephesus. Uh, but it's interesting what Jesus says to them in verse 4. That's the first church. He says, I hold this against you. You're my favorite. I cannot let this slide by. I'm sticking you on this one. He says, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen and repent and do the things you did at first. And what's the problem with Ephesus? See, they have traded off their first love, which is Jesus. They're doing all the things that the church has always done, but they're not into him. What's an example of that? Uh, I come to church every Sunday. I don't necessarily come for him, but I come to church every Sunday. Um, I don't fall asleep in the message. I sit there and I, you know, I, I, don't, I, I try to pay attention. Well, it's not for him, but, you know, I try to pay attention. Um, I always give my 10%. Really didn't have anything to do with him, but I always give my 10%. And Jesus, see, hey, he has been left out of everything. And again, we know that you leave Jesus out of anything we do in the church and uh, it's no longer what he wants. Um, this is the church of Ephesus. See, they've left him out. And he, this is one of the groups that he's showing favoritism to. Another one I'll just give you for kicks is uh, the church of uh, Thyatira. I think I'm pronouncing that right, Thyatira. Um, they have a woman in the church named Jezebel. Uh, verse 20, chapter 2. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. Okay, Tolerate. That means literally that, well, that's just how she kind of is. They let her hang around the church. And the problem in the church is that she's leading others astray. You finish that verse 20 out. It says, by her teachings, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Okay? This is that woman and this is that church. Uh, they, they tolerate this woman. And, hey, it's causing problems, and, and there's judgment involved in this. And that's just, hey, that's just Thyatira, and we, didn't even, we won't even look at Philadelphia, the lukewarm, and the, see the difficulty, and you go on to Laodicea, actually, that's the lukewarm. Um, you have these seven churches, and all of them have issues. And he is, he's looking at them and saying, hey, you're my favorite. Now, I, I, I don't know what that does to you, but, see, I have a God who looks at me and says, oh, Jeremiah. You're my favorite. And I'm not, I'm not all that hot. I, ha I, have, I have issues in my life. And there's so many times when I know I'm an embarrassment to him. And I'm not all that he's wanted me to be. And, 
and I look at my past and some of the decisions that I've made, and I don't know how you are, but you get in an argument with your wife, and, and uh, it, it is true that me and my wife argue from time to time, and you get in an argument with your wife, and you walk away, and you go, oh, why couldn't I just keep my mouth shut, which is a common problem men have. Uh, why, why, why couldn't I just keep my mouth shut? And I've said things that I shouldn't have said, and I've acted in ways that I shouldn't have acted, and I, and see, it, it, so you take that in the ripple effect of my life and, and all the details of, of, of real life and homes and our, and our jobs and those kind of places. See, he is showing us favoritism. Now, you think about that. Isn't, that. isn't that profound? See, these seven churches of Asia Minor and all the details that's going on and all the bad and all the smears, and you look at that and, and our first response, at least mine is, is I want to look at the seven churches and go, what's your problem? And yet God has looked at them and said, oh, they're the one that I want. See, I'm choosing them. See, he's showing favoritism to this group, which is fantastic. Now, I hope you can, I hope you can identify with that. Now, he links grace, favoritism. Hey, you're my favorite. He links that with peace, which again uh, is a really fantastic word. It has a Greek definition, and again, it has a biblical definition. The Greek definition of peace uh, kind of it's a wide range of meaning. Uh, it means well-being, peace meaning well-being, good wishes, uh, friendly intentions, kind of a neat idea. I cut out all giving you the context of, of how this would be used. I'm just giving you the definitions. Well-being, good wishes, friendly intentions. Uh, and here's a neat one. Peace literally meaning not just the absence of war, but it's the havoc that's caused by war. So all the havoc that's caused by war, if you're in peace, see, all of that is absent. So peace is the absence of the havoc of war. Now that's the Greek definition. Now you bring that word peace within the confines of our Bible, and you're going to find, especially it begins in the Old Testament and extends to the New Testament, that, you, it, that peace is both a relational term. This is really neat. Peace is a relational term, and it's a covenant term. It's a relational term in terms of when the people of Israel in their relationship with God, and they're in a right-standing relationship, they have peace. And this was, so, this was so neat to me. Every time the people are in a wrong relationship with God, how do you know? They're not in peace. They have war. You have an outside, you have an outside uh, force that comes in and just smashes Israel. And it's a, it's a statement of, hey, you're not in right relationship with me. Now you would say, well, what's right relationship with God? It is covenant. So it's relational and covenant. So being in right relationship with God has to do with covenant language. See, if, when Israel is living in righteousness, they're in peace. When they're living in faithfulness, they're in peace. When they're adhering to the law and in right covenant relationship, they have peace. And when they're not, they're in war. Uh, now, there are several examples of this, but in the Old Testament, this was so hard, especially for teenagers, because... Um, uh, Seems like nowadays teens want relationship and the best way to minister to junior hires, some think, is to just relationally hang out with them kind of thing. Um, in the Old Testament, being in right relationship with God was not an individual thing. It was a, it was a corporate thing, which is really difficult for me to understand. It's the kind of thing where, see, one person in the youth group messes up, you punish them all. Well, that doesn't work, man. And we don't do that. And so it's really difficult for teens to understand. But in the Old Testament, see, being in right relationship with God, abiding by the covenant, was an entire community type of thing. So it wasn't an individual. It was a corporate deal. And you see this, and I, I want you to look at this one, uh, in Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7, uh, this is, uh, t of course, the title is Achan's Sin. And you, we all obviously know this. Uh, the people of Israel, uh, they're gearing up. Um, they're gearing up to go in and, uh, and, and take this place. And, uh, of course, they're going to go in and attack and all of this. Um, pick up verse 3. Uh, when they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the people will have to go up against uh, Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it. Don't worry, uh, weary all the people, for only a few men are there. So about three thousand men went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai. I don't know how to pronounce Ai, so I'm just saying Ai. 
verse 5, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Now, again, this is on the backdrop of God saying, I'm with you and I'm going to give all this into your hand. And, and I'm your, hey, you're my favorite and I'm going to give you the, all of this phenomenal stuff. And then this takes place. Well, of course, verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes, fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord remaining there. And he said, hey, basically, what's going on? Hey, what's taking place? And they narrow it down. And you have this guy by the name of Achan, who's been taking some plunder of, of, of what God told them not to take. And, of course, it's the gold and all that stuff. He sinned. And his sin, think about this, his sin affects all the people. Okay? His sin affects all the people of Israel. So because of Achan, how would you like to be Achan? Or worse, how would you like to be Achan's boy? You're dead. Okay? See, because of Achan's sin, the people of Israel were looked at by God, corporate, as not being in right relationship with him, not being in a covenant relationship with him, and therefore peace left them. And of course, the havoc of war was, was in the midst of the camp of the peace, people of Israel. It's an example. And of course, man, that's just one of the many. But when that's Old Testament idea of peace. Now, when you go into the New Testament, you have, this is fantastic, you have the corporate idea of peace, but you also have the individual idea of peace. And I, this is really important to me. So if you've, if you've slept thus far, which I don't think you have, pay attention on this. I believe, obviously, when you come into the New Testament, when we talk about the covenant, it's not the old covenant, it's the covenant in Christ. See, hey, in Christ, man, I have peace. Period. And I have corporate peace. Which means, see, when you and I are living in right relationship with Jesus, there is a corporate peace that pervades a household. Uh, man, I've seen this in, in my home. When I'm not living, uh, I, I do believe that I'm the head of my household. And I believe there's weight to that. And when I'm plain flat, not living like God has called me to live, there is not peace in my home. See, when I am the image of Jesus in my home, I'm the first to die to myself. I'm the first to pour out my life. I'm to look at my wife as Christ looked at the church and say, it's not about me, it's about you. Hey, it's not about you. Uh, it's not about me using you for myself. It's about me pouring my life out for you. And, and hey, I'm the image of Jesus in my home. Somehow, again, I become the avenue where the peace of who he is just settles upon my household. See, which makes me think, see, the first time you go into a church and there's division and there's splitting and there's argument and there's fighting, someone's not in right relationship with Jesus, folks. I don't know how else to talk about that. See, there is, a corporate, there is a corporate reality in the New Testament. There's a corporate reality, literally, in the idea that when I'm in right relationship with Jesus, there is a corporate deal. But, um, I like, you, you see the commercials where it's the new, it's the new deal that they're, they're producing. Well, you have a new element added in uh, the New Testament in regards to peace. You have the corporate understanding, but you also have, it's really neat, you have this outside God that the people of Israel have been worshiping and living and he's causing peace and, and he's, hey, you're his favorite and he's extending grace to you. That's always shown in his deeds. He's acting and working and he's, he's manipulating your circumstances and, and your life is better, all of these kind of details. But in the New Testament, that God has come to dwell within you. And it's not just an outside thing that takes place anymore. It's an inside thing, which means, see, the peace that, that literally it's the peace that I'm in Jesus Christ and it's, it's my whole home is taking on this peace. See, that is, that is come and it's somehow brought within my bones and I have the peace of God that's living inside of me. Now, I don't know how to explain this to you, but let me give you a couple, uh, let me give you a couple passages where this is absolutely evident. I ask you to mark, this is the last place you'll turn, the book of John. Chapter 14, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Matthew because he says this in several key passages in Matthew. Go ahead and turn to John 14. But in the Matthew where he's sending out, uh, he's sending out the, you know, those to go and, and two by two they go. See, he says stuff like, hey, when you go into a house, let the peace. See, there's something unique. They've been given power. They've been given authority. There's something going on with them. He says, let the peace that's in you just spread upon that house. If they don't accept it, no pressure. Just let it come right back in you. 
See, there's something, there's really something that's significant about that. And there's something that's significant. There's a transition that takes place in the Gospel of John towards the end. Uh, in chapter 14, it's in conjunction with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Again, it's the outside God that's moving on the inside. And Jesus says them to, uh, this to them. Verse 25, 26, and 27. He says, All this I have spoken while still with you, but... Now listen to this. This is neat. But the Counselor... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, and peace I give to you. See, there is an extension, and this is fantastic. There is an extension. Jesus, I mean, of all the things that he could leave with them, of all the things that he could say, this is what he says. He goes, peace, and not just any peace, my peace. Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, I'm leaving with you. Now, he says that. And it's not just one time. He says it in chapter 14. And then, of course, there's the uh, illustration of the vine and branches and the consequences of being a Christian and the persecution of the world in chapter 15. You move into chapter 16, toward uh, the end of that chapter, and Jesus says in verse 32, He says, but a time is coming. Oh, listen to this. Man, I've stood on top of this one. Verse 32, but a time is coming and has now come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Now, why? Why would we need peace? Verse, uh, the rest of that verse. In this world, you will have trouble. Hey, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. And this is what he says is, listen, wait, in this world, you can bank on it. You can guarantee it. In this world, you're going to have trouble. But, hey, here's the deal. I'm leaving you my peace. He says it in 14, and he says it in 16. Now, those are two extremely crucial passages and, and key positions in, that, in this whole dialogue, 14, 15, and 16. But he not only says it there, it's the last place, it's in chapter 20. And of course, right after this conversation, Jesus is arrested in chapter 18. You have the trial that's taking place and the denial of Peter. And then the sentencing that's taking place in chapter 19. Jesus dies at the end of chapter 19. They discover the empty tomb in chapter 20. And then Jesus appears. And guess what he starts talking again about? This peace idea. He says in verse, uh, beginning at verse 19. On the evening... Of the first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and guess what he says? Peace. Peace be with you. He says it in verse 19. Every time he appears to them, this is what he's talking about. Verse 21. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. Verse 21. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Go down to verse uh, 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. The doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now, this is really important to me. Uh, I come from a long line of worry warts. Um, for me personally, there's a lot of pressure in my life. Uh, with my wife dragging her down the road 50 weeks a year and, and days when my son just does not want to be you know, strapped in a car seat for eight hours a day and uh, some of the difficult situations we're in and not being able to go to this funeral, not being able to go to that wedding or, or just it's the difficult of the road. It's being stranded on the side of the highway with a flat tire and, and all the stress. And of course, you have that kind of stuff in your life. Obviously, we all have that kind of stuff. The only way I survive is Him. It's the only way that I survive. It's see, somehow in the midst of that, it's the focusing upon Him. He comes and He brings an inner calmness in my being. See, He brings who He is and sheds peace in my life. In the midst of my trouble, in the midst of my circumstances, He's looking at me saying, Oh, Jeremiah, you're my favorite. I'm showing you favor. See, I'm showing you favoritism in the midst of all the circumstances, all the things that are happening. Say, you're my favorite one. I'm, I'm, I'm extending to you unmerited favor in, hey, despite, in spite of who you are. Hey, you're, you're unique and special to me. And because of that, the covenant that I'm establishing with you is you're going to live a life focused on me. You're going to get all wrapped up into me. And in that relationship, I'm going to shed peace in the midst of your world. In the midst of the circumstances, in the midst of the turmoil. I'll give you a quick example of this. Over the last, oh, this has been coming up in some of our sermons, but 
over the last six months, well, it's been more than that now, eight months, uh, my son, and I should be more specific, from May back through last December, my son, uh, twice a month, I mean, I'm talking just, you could almost count it, twice a month would have fevers ranging from 105.5 to 106.7, just out of the blue. And, uh, I mean, any time he got sick. And most, sometimes, most of the time, we had no idea what was wrong with him. He would just have, there was no other symptoms. He would just have fevers that would skyrocket. And we would be on the road, and we'd see him coming on, and he was just so miserable, if you can, I mean, obviously, and know what that's like. And we're on the road. We don't have a family doctor that we can just take him to that sees him all the time. We would go to the emergency room, and a doctor would see him, and they would give us, you know, their opinion, that kind of deal. They weren't pediatricians. And then, hey, if we have any problems, come back. Well, something would happen, so we'd come back the next day. You see a different doctor. You know? And every time you went back, it was that kind of setting. And this was, we was out in Oregon, so no family was around. And this was week after week after week after week. The worst came this last May. Uh, he went into a seizure. You know, he's foaming at the mouth. And my wife's freaking out, and I'm flipping out. And it was just... Uh, I can't tell you what that does to you. That's so, see, that's so, man, just absolutely. See, what do you do with that kind of thing? And I don't, I, see, I don't know how, see, I love to talk about Christianity. I love, because it's so, it's so prevalent here in the midst of the, do you realize the persecution that these seven churches are in? <laughs> do you realize the things that they're going through? I mean, you look at the church of, you look at the church of Smyrna. I mean, he tells them what they're going to go through. He says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Hey, don't be afraid. Some of you are going to be put in prison. Hey, the devil is going to test you. Some of you are going to be put to death. Hey, don't worry about it. And what's the answer? What's he saying? Hey, you're my favorite. I wouldn't leave you stranded out there. Hey, I've got my eye on you. I don't skip over you. I haven't washed my hands of you. I know you don't have it all together. I know you're not the best in the class. There's really nothing in you that makes me choose you, but you're my favorite. I extend you grace. And hey, what's that going to be packaged in? peace. In the midst of your circumstances, hey, rest in me. Focus in me. Because somehow getting focused in on me, it's just in the midst of your circumstances, you're going to sit there and rest and say, hey, it's going to be all right. Because he, he brings peace. He brings focus. It was the Old Testament idea, and you might be able to help me out with this, but it was the Old Testament idea of leading the people of Israel into their rest. And you would say, okay, is that nap time? No, not nap time. It was the idea that in right relationship with God, the people of Israel just found their place. They were like, he's in charge. See, he's leading. There's really no way to explain that to you. You just kind of got to experience that. Do you have that going on in your life? I mean, really going on? Not like pretend going on. But in the midst of, midst of circumstances that are absolutely out of control, you ever had anybody look at you and say, oh, how did you get through that? <laughs> and you just go, oh, it's him. It's his peace. It's the direct result of being in covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. And See, he's brought his rest in the middle of my bones. And see, I rest in him. Jesus, we love you this evening. I thank you for the truth of your word. Jesus, I do a lot of missions work overseas. I always feel a little bit guilty when I come back. Because I've got MasterCard, I've got Visa. I've got air conditioning, two of them. I'm under the impression that uncomfortableness is not a term that I really am affiliated with or familiar with. Jesus, I want to experience your peace in the midst of my world. And I look and I know I have it so good. And indeed, you are so good to my wife and I and what you've given us and man we don't have a care in the world and we're so we're so blessed by you 
And I do indeed feel that, man, somehow, I'm your favorite. And I know that you look at everyone like that in, in Christ and you're looking at us. and It's why you're acting the way you're acting. It's, the, it's, it's seen in the deeds. It's, it's seen in what you're doing in our life. But somehow each, and of, each of us, we look, at, we look at you and we're your favorite. And because of that, in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of our turmoil, in the midst of the difficulties, we experience your peace. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. And I'm wondering, maybe, and it's... You run into this all the time. Maybe you've been going through it lately. Maybe you're having some difficulties with an, and I, I've, you know, with a spouse, or you've had some hard times, and you just, man. Could I encourage you just to say, Jesus, I, I want to, I just want to focus on you in the middle of this situation, and I want the, I want the natural aroma of of your presence in my life. We call it peace. I want it to just spill through my house. I want it to flow into my son's room and my daughter's room. And Jesus, could I just wash my wife with the word? And could your peace just flow over her? And, and, and God, in the middle of my work scene and what's going on down there and the turmoil of, of not knowing where my job is taking me, would you just, hey, could I focus on you and rest in you? And could you bring peace in the middle of the situation? And, and let, it pervade my, let it pervade my attitude. And Maybe he's dealing with you tonight. I don't want to have an opportunity to respond. We're only going to tarry for a few minutes, but maybe he's dealing with you. And if you've never experienced that, I don't. Hey, I don't know if this is profound to you as it is to me. But if you've never experienced that, wow! Hey, this is your opportunity. You can experience it. You can literally live in the peace of Christ as it flows flows into every single circumstance that you have, just as it has for the seven churches of Asia Minor. He's dealing with you tonight. We'll give you opportunity to respond. Jesus.